0: This is Growth Masters, the show for CEOs, CMOs, and anyone wanting to keep up with what's new in the world of business, marketing, and tech. You're in conversation with Robert Tadros. So today's guest is the CEO of the Luxury Lifestyle and Consumer Brand Strategy firm based out of California. He consults some of the world's leading luxury brands, such as, as, we all know, Ferrari. He's also the author of several luxury management books, a global keyword keynote speaker, and holds luxury masterclasses in Europe, the USA, and, and Asia. He's an award-winning brand builder, like I like to call him. He's a, he's a brand psychologist. <laughs> so please welcome Daniel Langer.
1: Thank you so much, Rob.
0: <laughs> but it's nice and sunny over there, not like here where I'm, where I'm stuck inside in, 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 in six-degree weather.
1: Yeah, it's actually uh, the, the place I'm, I'm here currently um, is, is one of the warmest in the world. And, uh, but we have a bit of an overcast day today, so it's a bit unusual. So usually it should be, should be like blue skies and today is a bit of a, of a gray day. But okay, it's, it's nice for a
0: change. Well, look, trust me, it's much, much better than where I am at the moment. So <laughs> well, yeah. I definitely wouldn't be complaining. Dan, I'd love to, you know, open up the conversation mm-hmm. and, and the topic where I where I where I believe we can add a lot of value is, you know, how do we add extreme value even in some of the, in the toughest time that, that we're in at the moment? So I'd love, I guess, you know, to hear a little bit more about what you do, a little bit more about 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 the agency, and I guess some of the brands that you that you currently work with.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. So. You know, I, when when I founded Equity, which actually was only about three and a half years ago, so I'm I'm, I'm quite sometimes surprised how fast we we managed to grow and um, how fast basically the, the the idea that that I already developed probably about a decade ago, um, how fast the trend get got traction once we once we launched it in the market, and so you know I I kind of started my my journey probably about a little bit more than a decade ago when I wanted to understand why people are actually buying luxury. And then I was very surprised that there was hardly any research on the topic. So I kind of uh, took it on me to um, to change that and decided to do um, a PhD on luxury management. And uh, on this, I focused on, uh, during that study, I focused very much on dissecting the why. You know, why are people buying? And you know, Colloquially, or so we, we kind of like to say, it's status. Yeah. Also, some people say, okay, they want to impress others, but I re- never really liked that um, that notion because when we say it's about status, it's about others, it's about impressing, it's it kind of implies some kind of judgment. And um, I always think that if we work with brands or if we want to build a brand and and create um, you know luxury for consumers it's not very good to start from a, from a judging perspective, but we should do much more an understanding perspective. And so this is kind of how it all started. And then my, my work during the PhD was very much focused on the understanding of what are the drivers of value of brands and kind of this brings me to, to your question. I like to sometimes say, luxury is extreme value creation. It's nothing more, nothing less. So when we speak from a brand's perspective, I'm in the luxury business. If I'm, if I have the ability to create extreme value for a consumer, much higher than the average category value. So let's say, if we take um, because I have water now here in front of me, if we take the water category, you know, some people are able to um, sell a water maybe only for I don't know 10, 15 cents a cup, or a glass, and then someone else is able to sell it for um, 50 or 60 or 100 dollars a cup. And I was always wondering what makes it so much different from one to the other and how can we basically take this and take this to the next level? So this is kind of the foundation of what we do right now has been, or the last couple of months have been among our busiest months. And I would say that there's the kind of three factors first, a lot of brands, and this is kind of independent whether they're in luxury or not in luxury, have been suffering quite quite a lot um, now, obviously, during the pandemic, as, as we all know. Um, several different reasons. And some of them came to us to ask for advice. But the other thing is, which I also find very, very exciting, is there's a lot of new brands that are not yet in the market and that are about to be launched. And I've never seen so much activities of entrepreneurs to kind of prepare the launch of new brands. And this I kind of find fascinating because you have the, a lot of the existing ones that are struggling, so to speak. And then you have a couple of new ones that are um, about to, uh, to launch and to disrupt the, the markets. And um, this kind of uh, energy from on both sides, you know, how to kind of mitigate the risks when you're already in a market and how do you kind of connect very strongly with your, with your customers and with your consumers to create value for them on one hand, and then for the new brands kind of, you know, what do you do as a new brand to enter the market, enter the market successfully and take a share of of this. So kind of this balance between both to me is very, very fascinating. And then maybe the, the other thing is since we work all over the world, and this was especially interesting for me in the beginning of the pandemic, I kind of saw the, you know, the different regions developing in it with a different speed and also reacting differently. Mm. So we do quite a bit of business in Asia, particularly in China. And as you know, China was kind of the first country that was affected. With our partners in Hong Kong, for example, we, we decided to be very, very fast also in terms of reacting, um, you know, sending people home early and um, allowing them to work from home. And uh, before, for example, in Europe or in the US, we even kind of really thought about the pandemic and then i remember that end of february um i just had i i would just finished my last uh, my last mba um class for the spring semester to teach it you know at even in at the university campus we spoke a bit about coronavirus but it seemed very far away and then two weeks later we were in lockdown and so the things things kind of happened very fast but we could take already some of the learnings looking at asia and looking at kind of how companies reacted, how consumers reacted, take this then to our clients um, in US and in Europe, and then help them to glide through the pandemic a little bit better than um, if we would have been unprepared. And so we always try kind of to take those kind of learnings from all, uh, all over the world um, and uh, then to, to kind of see what, what can we do and how can we react um, as fast as possible.
0: Yeah, it's quite interesting, isn't it? I mean, do you find that the consumer behavior doesn't dramatically change from one region to the other? Or do you find that the same, I guess some of the same underlining behaviors are very much the same across the globe? The reality is we're all consumers, we're all humans. But I would imagine that the <laughs> consumer behavior typically will change depending on the region that you're in.
1: Yeah, there are a couple of things that that seem to be different, while I would say many things are similar. So maybe let's start with similarities that I'm observing all over the, the world. Oh, yeah. So, no, not not surprisingly, digital is getting much more important, and you know we all feel it. So we are doing now these conversations using Zoom um, and being connected yeah. on two two parts of the world. Um, today, if I just look in today's meeting, today I had a meeting with someone in uh, Dubai. I had a meeting with someone in Israel. I had a meeting with someone in Miami and I had a meeting with someone in Paris, uh, all on the same day. And uh, traditionally, and I think most, most of us, you know, maybe if you don't work so much internationally, it may be just a little bit different with the locations, but most of us now are used to spending many hours in front of, of computer screens, not only, you know, typing things, but also communicating um, with others. And so as we do that, we also, Take information in in a different way, and you know, do do things differently. Even going into you know our private lives. So I'm pretty sure it's uh, something similar in in Australia, but for example here in the U.S. And I saw this also in Asia and in, also in Europe in many places connected fitness is go, is getting more and more um, important. Since people cannot go to the gym in, in many places, so um, the gym's kind of pivoted, uh, offering now a lot of their classes online. And then you have um, here in US now very, very popular connected devices. So for example, I have a connected, connected spinning bike here at my house so I can, I can exercise and basically join live classes even, but they are on the bike so I don't have to go to the, to the gym anymore. This is something that I see in, in kind of different expressions but becoming dramatically more, exp- uh, more important all over the world. And we basically see, if we think now about brands, we see t- two types of brands right now. Brands that are really, really good in digital and they are doing relatively well, um, you know, compared to, to, to others. And brands that were late in go- getting digital, late in adaptation, and they are suffering like crazy or, you know, even be, uh, getting out of the market.
0: Yeah, when I, when I listen to brands now that say, we're about to go into a digital transformation, I think it's too late. <laughs> you know, you've no. missed the boat. It's no longer about yeah. digital transformation. We're now talking about like digital innovation, right?
1: What else? I recently published an article and I was arguing exactly what you say. I basically said, let's not talk anymore about digital transformation. It's mm-hmm. about digital mastery right now. And it is, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting that a lot of categories, especially in the, in the luxury field, have been resistant to digital for for a long time. And the argument was always that you need the the human factor. And without the human factor, you cannot do luxury. And I believe that this is completely wrong. Because it's not... So the human factor, obviously, is very important. But the human factor is, at at one point, and this is what a lot of brands don't understand, the human factor is the consumer it's not the brand so when the when the brands basically say that uh, you know we need the human factor they usually talk about themselves and say the customer has to come to us has to come to our temple and has to basically play with our rules Mm -hmm. and we are now in 2020 and in 2020 the game is played completely differently so the human factor is the consumer the consumer will always remain human so we are all when we are consuming things we are all humans Mm -hmm. so But now I have choices. So for example, right now, I'm for example, um, I've basically not been to any grocery store since uh, March. Um, I've basically not been, I didn't go to any other store since March. You know, I'm sometimes joking. What you can see now is kind of my coronavirus hair um, (laughs) cut because my last haircut was in January and I don't know when I'm going to go to to, um, the hairdresser next. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I will probably do this when I feel safe. So this means for me, this notion that luxury or let's say, call it extreme value creation has to be a human in a sense, a human to human interaction always is completely wrong. Mm -hmm. Because for example, if I want to inform myself about, um, I don't know, buying a new car or buying luggage or buying, I don't know, a shirt or a jacket or something like that. The first thing I will do, and most people do, is I go online and I start to inform myself about, you know, what is out there and, and so on. And then maybe I buy online. Yeah? And then there were a lot of degrees that basically said for, again, many, many decades, we're not going to sell online. Take the watch industry. The watch industry was maybe one of the ones that resisted longest to say you have to go through a de- to a dealership. So now, when all the dealerships are closed in many parts of the world, I would say, good luck with this approach. It, it, will, not, it will not work. So if you want to sell then uh, a watch, better you, you offer something online. Mm-hmm. Um, the same when you think about car brands. Most car brands have insisted for decades that you have to go to the dealership to make the deal, so to speak. And then the, the first company that, that disrupted this notion was Tesla. And uh, Tesla insisted, or Tesla said, we are not even going to have any kind of dealership. Everything is, is basically run by us as a brand. And everything that we do also works digitally. So I can order a Tesla online, even if it's the the, uh, the Model X for, I don't know, 100, 120,000 US dollars, can order it online. And there is no reason why this should not be the case. So if I want to interact with, uh, with them, I can go to their store, that's fine. But if I don't want to interact with them, then I should be able to buy online. And so I'm, I agree with you. So it's, it's, um, it's about digital mastery, digital innovation. And it's also about understanding that the battle between brands is one now in the digital space. The consumer will make the decision be- before they even go to the store. And this was even uh, valid you know, six months ago, one year ago, two years ago even for very, very high end luxury products. The consumers have already made their decision when they go in the store. Mm. So this means the store is only the final point of the journey. Mm. And a lot of brands have uh, paid probably too much attention on the stores and then they forgot that the journey begins before. And if I'm not winning versus my competitors in the moment before the people enter the store, I'm not going to win, very simple.
0: That's a very, very interesting point. You know, if I apply that to, you know, a lot of the work that we do at impressive around customer journey mapping and understanding Mm. what the sales funnel look like or the consumer, Mm. you know, what that actual, you know, that path to purchase looks like. When you think about it, it's like 80% of our work goes at the start before they even walk into the store or before they actually, you know, begin their purchase journey. So there's, there's a big awareness piece that I guess if, if you know it's very hard to I guess replicate in the offline world. However, we're mm-hmm. able to do that in the online world through you know social media, whether it's through Google GDN or whether it's affiliate websites, what whatever that sort of journey may be. Mm-hmm. And if you were to you know if you were to take that component out, it'd be very very hard to get the conversion at the end. So when you actually apply that when you think apply that same thinking to the offline world, how do you get someone in store if you haven't built the awareness at the start? So exactly. if you get all your money and all your efforts at the end, how are you actually going to build that initial awareness piece? So I think that's actually a very valid point. I guess on that, Dan, you know, like has the consumer journey evolved? Probably the, the luxury experience, has that evolved? Has it, you know, is the consumer a lot more focused now on the, the brand itself rather than just the product or the, or the service that the oh, actual yeah. brand offers
1: so there's a couple of things that I find personally unbelievably exciting, and not only because we focus very much on that consumer. So for us, the main target group, and when we when we kind of design brands and, and I mean design brands not from a you know graphic design perspective, but design brands from a strategic perspective and from a positioning perspective, we always have Gen Z in mind. Yeah. I always start with, with the youngest consumers, with those below 20. And the reason is that um, each consumer cohort always looks to what the younger cohort is doing. No one ever basically wants to look what the people that are elder than us are doing. We are not usually looking to, I don't know, our parents and grandparents for, uh, you know, behavioral examples or to emulate them. We usually emulate the kids. So therefore it's very important. If for example, a brand has, has a target group, let's say, 30 plus or 35 plus, which I hear all the time. So, and especially in luxury, a lot of brands think, okay, 35 to 55 or something like that. If they are not appealing to the 16 year old, the 35 year old will not never buy them. And so you have to go one to two generations um, before. And the tricky thing now is that the younger generations, they know dramatically more than the elder generations. So now there's a lot of things that are very, very surprising because intuitively, still a lot of managers of brands think that basically you have to accumulate some experiences to know what people are talking about, so to speak. Yeah. And that's not necessarily the case anymore. Usually the youngest, first of all, they're the most discerning. Yeah. The second, and this is this, I find fascinating, we saw a lot of studies around Gen Z, and we actually also have a, like a Gen Z advisory board. So we have a couple of Gen Zs that we in, take into our projects where we just bounce ideas back and forth to see is what we do appealing to them. I think one of the defining factors of this generation is that they perceive themselves as brands, as as kind of personal brands. So they don't see themselves just as a person, they also perceive themselves as a brand. Mm. And now if you see yourself as a brand, you curate yourself, for example, through social media, then this also means you want to now connect yourself with brands that are re- representative to, with your own brand values. Mm. And this is now why for brands, for not only in the future, already now, the way how you have to kind of think strategically has to be completely different. And I would say, even completely different than just three or four years ago. It's changing in a dramatic speed. And what is the most important nowadays is the storytelling. And I always like to say, the storytelling is everything. Forget the product. The, the product is important because the product is kind of the expression of the brand. Yeah? So um, if I, let's say, a very simple example, if I don't play golf, I'm never going to, uh, to buy golf clubs. It's very simple. Yeah? If I don't play tennis, I'm never going to uh, buy a tennis record. So the, the, the category is important, but the category is not the defining factor while we buy a brand. No one is going to buy the... So if, if let's take the Birkin bag from MS. If that bag would be uh, sold by a brand that you would never have heard of, no one is going to buy that bag. And probably no one is going to buy, pay the price of that bag. The bag works because the bag is connected with Hermes. There's a very specific story around the bag, and this story is so appealing that consumers basically wait, um, I don't know, sometimes years uh, to get one. So the story is the most most, um, important when we build the brand. And um, this is what a lot of companies underestimate. If you think about, and probably you see this in your own experience, if you think about the time that brands spend developing products versus the time they spend reflecting about you know what is their brand what is their brand story you will find that a huge amount of time and resources goes into product and Mm -hmm. usually not so much time goes into the brand we see this right now if we look for example in the luxury space the brands that are doing okay and the brands that are doing very very badly are typically the bad ones are the ones that are usually weak in digital, but there are even a couple of brands that are very strong in digital, but they're very weak in brand storytelling, and they're not doing well. For example, this week I published an article about Burberry, and um, I found Burberry fascinating because um, just a couple of months ago, I discussed it with my students in classroom, and I was surprised that the reaction of my students towards Burberry was relatively lukewarm. So no one was really super excited about the brand. And a lot of of my students, um, wherever they came from, uh, students from China, from Middle East, from Europe, about half from the US, they kind of said, you know, it's a beautiful brand, but I cannot really say too much about it. And then I kind of forgot about Burberry, so to speak, which also is not not a good sign. But then, um, you know, when I saw last week that they are um, restructuring and firing now quite a lot of people in their workforce um, and that their numbers are down dramatically. I kind of started to reflect and then I looked on their website and tried to find the Burberry story and I could not find one. So, you know, I invite everyone, if someone knows the Burberry story or if there's a Burberry story, uh, send it to me, but I could not find one. The story they're telling is all about the design. It's about the heritage, so obviously about the trench coat, about their their famous pattern and then that their their designer has been kind of redesigning now the logo and so on but as a consumer you know sometimes I'm they're very blunt I say so what I couldn't care less I don't care about your new logo I don't care about a new pattern you know give me a story and don't tell me that the story is trench coats from the 1950s because we are now living in the 2020 so I don't care what happened in the 1950s so the story has to be believe me a, a gen z is not caring about that so um the story has to be really um has to be relevant has to be contemporary and then one point is very important and you mentioned it for digital consumers have to perceive your brand as innovative they have to under they have to kind of have the feeling wow this brand is giving me something something that other brands are not giving me And this does not need to be let's say a new technology it has just has to be something that inspires me Mm. and this kind of innovation slash inspiration is so important whenever we observe brands over time and whenever we see that brands are declining very often as i said ability of storytelling is missing but even worse so to speak if there's no story then there's usually no inspiration and if you're not inspiring your customers How can you expect that they're going to pay a premium for your brands? So in principle, it's very, very simple. I I achieve extreme value by inspiring my consumers. And I inspire my consumers because I do something that others are not doing. And then I I better have a good story about it. You know, stories that inspire people, that they understand, that they want to tell their friends, that they like for themselves, that they can, you know, that they can dream of. This is so important, and the product itself, without the story, is worth nothing.
0: Yeah, that's great. Look, and, and I I think from my perspective, there's also a there's this exclusivity, right, about about certain mm. brands. You know, you've mentioned two uh, very particular brands, and to be honest, I haven't. I don't own anything from Burberry, nor do I own anything from Hermes. But <laughs> my wife talks about it a lot. And, and from my understanding is, you know, him is you can't just walk in, even if you had the money and buy mm. a Bergen bag, right? You, there is a waiting list is my understanding, mm. right? Um, yeah. So they've created this exclusivity around a particular product that has a story, but mm. behind it. Where with Burberry, I mean, anybody can walk in and buy a, a trench coat.
1: Yeah, and there is, there is you know, it's, it's a bit of an art because as a brand, you want to be you want to have a certain size in a sense so you want to obviously grow you want to have a sizable business and you you usually need to to stay on several you know um, pillars in order to be you know to be successful over over time because each market has its its own cyclical um, you know moments and so on so it's it's good for a brand to not be dependent only for one sector but of other sectors and you can see that really the, the super successful luxury brands usually are relatively diversified and offer basically under, this, under their own brand story, different products that basically then accompany you through your day. But in a, to a certain degree, exclusivity is very important. So therefore, for example, a lot of a very, very successful strategy is basically that you reduce the, the offer, so to speak. So um, you do limited editions. You try to do something that creates, creates a certain hype but then you ideally sell a little bit less or much less than, than the hype. Yeah? Ferrari has been successful with this uh, you know, since the beginning. And I think in the beginning, Enzo Ferrari always said, we are, we are going to produce exactly one car less than the demand, yeah, so that, always, that, that there's always demand. And a fantastic example was just happening the last couple, I don't know, two, three weeks ago, when Christian Dior launched a collaboration with Nike, was the Air Jordan shoe. So mm. it was the Air Dior shoe. In my point of view, genius, a genius move. So they created an incredible hype digitally around this shoe. And uh, the shoe was priced for $2,500, which is quite a deep a premium to to the basic Air Jordan that you can buy probably for about a $100. And yeah. yes, the shoe had some modifications. So you have a Christian Dior logo on it and you have a couple of maybe different leather applications on it. And there's a lot of craftsmanship that goes into it, but it's a quite steep um, premium already. But you can see kind of when you do the right thing, so you kind of uh, create the right hype, you you play really very well on the digital side because they did a phenomenal job on announcing on announcing it uh, digitally and creating kind of also like a, a waiting list moment. So you had to sign, if you wanted to buy the shoe, you had to sign up on a, on a waiting list. And then, interestingly, I think they limited the the edition around fifteen thousand worldwide, if I have the numbers right now in my in my memory. And they had five million people who wanted to buy the shoe. And uh, um, I I just saw last week on a used or basically on a kind of reselling platform that the shoe is trending now around twenty thousand dollars, just two or three weeks after the after the release. And I would not Absolutely. be surprised if we if we see the shoes uh, in in a you know in a couple of weeks. Maybe at fifty thousand dollars or even even beyond, and that is really really the ability that shows. You know, you have one brand, Burberry, struggling, not being able to sell their items in the way they, they want, starting to discount, and uh, and then basically having to fire people or reduce restructure their their um, their company. On one hand, so maybe not being able to inspire, and then you have another brand, Christian Dior that is able to inspire. We are exactly at the same moment in time, one brand not working very well, the other brand kind of firing from all cylinders and yeah. uh, and uh, inspiring the consumers. So again, this ability to tell stories, this ability to want people to, you know, this fi- famous FOMO, fear of missing out, to, to, yeah. to, to want people not, miss, not wanting to miss out. If you can do that, then you create really an incredible amount of value and you can see that the value goes far beyond the sale because if your products in a used form are much more valuable than your products when you sold them, this this tells you how much value you're actually creating um, for consumers.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the moment that Christian Dior put that logo on those Jordans, I think the price would have naturally gone up about a thousand percent, right? Yeah. The, the amount exactly. of brand equity that that sits within that logo. The, a, a very a particular brand that I'm, you know, I'm I'm very much into my watches, and I have been trying to buy a Rolex Pepsi for probably close to two years now. I think Rolex have done a, a significant, a, an amazing job at maintaining the exclusivity of the brand and, and 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 the amount of volume i guess that they well the amount of pieces that they produce so mm-hmm. typically a watch you know a rolex pepsi would retail for around close to fourteen thousand aud right um, mm-hmm. in, in australia that exact watch i mean number one it doesn't exist you can't it's the most thought after rolex right now globally mm-hmm. secondly if you were to buy to, to even attempt to buy that Rolex on, say, Chrono 24 or, you know, one of the online on, online retailers, you'd be paying in excess of thirty to 35,000 AUD. Mm-hmm. The exact same watch that retails for 14,000, right? You're paying mm-hmm. the price because of the limited amount of pieces that are, that, are, that are existing, I guess, around the world and the amount of demand for that exact mm-hmm. watch. So I I just, you know, I find that extremely, extremely smart and very, very clever, I guess, from from such a brand. Yeah, this
1: this is what some brands do brilliantly. You know, Rolex has been always a a brand. It's it's a phenomenal example of that. They combine, you know, incredible craftsmanship. And at, at the same point in time, you know, you see them, while you see them everywhere, you have some of them that are very very hard to get and it's it's almost like a like a sport so uh, you know similar similar to you I um I was uh, you know I'm wearing today my, my kind of normal GMT master and I was and, and I was um, also looking at the Pepsi one and um, the the jeweler uh, that I buy my watches from he said okay um, I put you on the waiting list but it will take a couple of years until you will you will get one yeah, and um, then a lot of people may never, do, may never do that because they don't want to wait or then they wait and then maybe they, they don't get it. So I think the secret is a bit to while you need to sell things, some of your, of your assortment, if, it's, if, uh, if some iconic items, if you change them, if you limit them, um, if you change them all the time so that people basically know that if they don't buy now, it will be, it will be gone. These are all strategies that can increase the value quite dramatically. But again, it's it's very much why is the Pepsi one so um, sought after, or the Daytona? It's because those watches have stories, you know. Those watches we are connected uh, with history, you know. And then the the Pepsi one was discontinued, and then it came again in the with, in the ceramic, in the ceramic um, bezel. So there is there is a lot of history in in that, and a lot of of storytelling. Um, if they would just have basically launched it, and and they had like twenty colors. And um, then this was just one of the 20 colors. No one would, be, would, would care for that. Mm. But because they have been always very restrained in the number of colors they had, and then from time to time they launched something like the Pepsi, which is very unusual. And people already know that probably this watch is not going to be available forever, um, but probably it's going to disappear relatively fast so if I don't taste the order now. I will never get it. It's it's kind of the same. It's kind of the same thing, and it's similar to a Daytona. You no know, good luck to get one. This is this will take uh, will will take you quite some. Well, some, I've,
0: I've uh, a friend of mine in, uh, who, who's a jeweler here in Australia, and if you want a Daytona, I can get you one right now. <laughs> he gets him. He's got. He has a dealer in, in Hong Kong, actually. Oh, yeah. uh, and he does mm-hmm. have. He sent me a photo of it yesterday. He does have a, um, a rose gold. Uh, with the black dial Daytona that's available. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so you don't want to know how much it's worth. <laughs> <laughs> <Probably> insane, <huh? laughs> it's pretty insane. It's pretty insane. And I guess like the last area I want to sort of cover off is around personalization. You know, I, mm-hmm. I'm seeing that there is a great importance now on, on personalization in general, and we're seeing that probably with even some of the luxury, you know, handbag brands, like even the Gucci. You know, you can walk in and get your initials on it or Louis Vuitton. Um, mm-hmm. What are your sort of what are your thoughts on I guess where personalization is and how does that impact an overall um, an overall brand? You know,
1: if you if you think about extreme value creation, um, and this is why I this is why I personally like this term so much um, and ra- much more than the the original term luxury. Mm. When you think about what creates an extreme value, it's in principle if you have an item that only you have. So the most personal, the more personal I can do something and in the extreme, if I can reduce it to one, you know, then I have, then I really have an absolute value. And this, you know, is not only in, in, um, in products, you even think about services. So if you go to a hotel and let's say you have a normal experience, so to speak, so this means you probably go there. You know, you go to the check-in, and they say, you know, what's your name? Do you have your ID? Do you have your credit card? You know, the thing that we all all experienced in our life. And then they give they ask you, you want one or two keys? And uh, then around the corner is the elevator, and then you take the elevator up to your room, and then you go to your room. And then you know, you will either the room is a little bit bigger or a little bit smaller, but nothing will surprise you. And then maybe in the evening, you go to the hotel bar, have a drink. Then you go to the restaurant, have your dinner, and then you go to sleep. and next morning you check out. Mm. So in, in, this is basically how 99.9% of hotel experiences are, especially when you travel for business. The problem I have with this is that this is not creating a memory. Nothing of this, what we experience creates a memory. And why doesn't it create a memory? Because nothing what I just described and what we're experiencing all the time. And, you know, think about almost all your service experiences. Mm. They are typically not branded experiences. So many services are, I call them category experiences. So you get from one exactly the same that like we get from everyone else. Mm. And um, and sometimes with hotels, I like to say you can blindfold me and put me in hotel ABC. Um, if, I ta- if you take the logo away, I will not be able to tell you whether I'm in, in that chain or in that chain or in that chain because they kind of do the same. And then sometimes the hotels are nicer, not so nice and, and so on. So what do I want to say with this? This is an experience that has no memories, no values created. And why is there no ve- memory? Because nothing is personal. Absolutely nothing is personal in there. They didn't make, take any personal attention. So I tell you another experience that I have, and this is this is you know how personally how far personalization can can go, and what personalization means. When I was teaching um, my one of my last classes in in um, at Pepperdine in Malibu, I decided to I had um, one of my guest speakers was the CEO of a very very beautiful small boutique hotel um, in Malibu. And um, he was so inspiring to the students that I decided to um, stay next time at his hotel to kind of see if what he claims is actually what you experience as a guest. Mm-hmm. And um, what he told to the, to the students is that they never say no. So basically, they're, they're, what they always do is to say yes. And not basically just say yes, say yes. But he said, our life is a life of no's. So wherever we go, you ask something and then, um, you know, they send you from one counter to the next. You, you, go, you call a call center and then you find out that you are at the wrong line and then you have to call again or then they, so, in, 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 you know, they, send, they always send us away most of the places, most of our experiences. And these are not very pleasant experiences, but we are just so used to because everywhere we go, we have a no culture, so to speak and so he basically said we have a yes culture mm. so and what happened was and, and that was for me absolute personalization or example of personalization was um you know i checked in relatively late in the evening and um, i still had to prepare my class for the next morning when i checked in they they basically you know they chatted with me a little bit and then they said you know what mr Langer, we. Um, we actually have a yoga class tomorrow at the beach. So, and it's at nine o'clock. Do you want to join us for the class? And then I, I was kind of smiling and I was saying to her I said, you know, I would love to join, but um, you know, it's as always. I said I'm always unlucky because every time when I'm in a hotel and they offer something I want to do, it's at hours I can't do. I said at nine o'clock I'm going to be in front of my students. I'm going to teach. So unfortunately I have to, I have to, as uh, to uh, I, I can't, I can't join. And then you know. A normal hotel, the conversation would have ended here. Yes. And then she asked me one thing. She said, Mr. Langer, at what time do you want to have your personal class? Oh, wow. What time would work for you? And then I said, okay, I have to be in classroom at eight, uh, maybe at five. And then she said, okay, at five o'clock, there will be a trainer at the beach waiting for you. It's on the house. And um, if you decide, if you feel too tired, because we know you have to prepare still and so on. If you feel too tired you don't even have to call us, you just sleep in. But if, if you want to get up at five, at five there's someone waiting for you and going to take you through a yoga class. And, you know, this is for me a, a fantastic example of a personalized experience. And then what I did was I liked that, that experience so much and it was kind of so, I don't know, magical, so to speak, to, to, you know, to be on the beach in the morning and then you hear the sea and then you see the sun uh, going up. So what did I do? Um, I I went back to my hotel room, had to kind of you know uh, shower and get ready for my class, and then I decided I'm not going to check out. So I left my stuff in the in the in the hotel. I went to to uh, to the university and decided to stay um, a day longer. And so I called them and said, okay, please please keep my room for another night. So whatever that yoga class cost costed, it was dramatically less than than one night in that in that hotel. But the the value they created the personalization they created you know instead of the usual okay you know um i can't um, when i said i can't uh, um, i can't join instead of the usual okay then this is it they basically said okay how can they solve that for me how can Mm -hmm. they make how can they make this personal so that i that i really enjoy my my stay and get the maximum out of it And I thought this was for me one of the, and I'm using this quite often now in in my master classes as a case study, because that that has been for me personally such a strong thing that, you know, it's so simple sometimes to make something personal. It's so simple to make the life of someone just a little bit easier and a little bit nicer. And in, in the end of the day, this is when we think really about luxury experiences. This is what we all want. It's not necessarily always about, you know, the um, the super fancy things. It's Sometimes this little things where you have a very human interaction and this coming back to what we said in the beginning, you know, about digital and human. In this yes. case, it was a very human interaction, but it was a human interaction because it was done for me and it was not basically done for them. It was not, I had to follow their rules. They basically thought and thought, okay, this guy doesn't have time at that time, uh, he he would like to do yoga, but he just gave us the information he can never do that because mm. it's always too late. So okay, then let's just make a decision here and now. We will we will find a way. They didn't even, you know, hesitate. And I think this is you know coming to personalization. This is so important to think about how can we personalize things. And this can be, you know, your initials on on a bag, mm. but personalization goes dramatically Dramatically to the next level,
0: and it sounds as though like it's the simplest things that can go the longest way. You know, like she could have uh, she could have made a decision right then and there to say, "Well, you know, the yoga classes at the time, so you know, we're sorry that you can't attend." Right, but she went extra mile to go. Well, we'll have a personal yoga instructor for you at five o'clock at the beach. And even if you can't make it, it's okay. You know, yeah. In Um, and the return on investment from that was.
1: Incredible. It's, unbe- it's right. unbelievable the value you create with something like that, and you know this is sometimes what I'm when I'm working with my clients, and you know you ask us about customer journey, and when we when we optimize their customer journeys and think how can we how can we create value, mm. because you know you cannot leave the customer journey to to random events. This only happened in that hotel. Yes. Because the CEO, basically. Empowered his team to say yes and to find solutions, mm. and to basically um, and to be and to pivot if needed, and and that's that's also something very maybe very important because let's think basically a couple of hours later theoretically, so let's say she made the promise to give me the bring me the teacher, and uh, then she calls ten teachers that are available and everyone says I can't I can't I can't. And maybe one teacher says, you know, five o'clock is too early. I would do it, but only if it costs five hundred dollars. They already made the promise to me, mm-hmm. so maybe they, let's say she would now hire that teacher for five hundred dollars, so that she can keep the promise.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Let's assume now, because sometimes these things sound so easy. Let's let's just do it. Let's just do the same. You know, we will we will now implement it. But if, for example, next next day at lunchtime, she presents to her her boss. The invoice of five hundred dollars, if the boss even hesitates or is a little bit grumpy about that, no one ever in that hotel would ever go above and beyond. It should yeah. basically be reprimanded for that, and that is why sometimes people have to be very careful when they when they say, "You know we are empowering our teams or are we are expecting our teams to go the extra mile. It only works if the people who are empowered feel safe to be empowered. And this is where a lot of brands make mistakes um, that they basically, they say a lot of things. They put lots of things in their mission statement. They say, we are doing the world-class service. This is also like a word I cannot hear. I I, I kind of, sometimes I like say, I want to vomit if someone tells me <laughs> um, world-class service. <laughs> and And I tell you why, you know, I tell you why if, if let's say, let, let's take hotels because everyone can imagine hotels. So, if I basically would say, let's we, we open now a beautiful new hotel in Melbourne, yeah, and now and I hire you to run this hotel and I say, uh, Rob, provide world class service to all guests. What will you do? You know, it's not actionable, you will not know what to do. So, it's you will do your day best, day. yeah, you will do your best. But what does world class service even mean? But in I've seen in so many manuals of brands. Um, when they basically describe their serving experience, we expect all our our, our employees to do world class or we are we do excellent service. It's all bullshit. Every, every company, I hope, because I said every company should do world class service. Every company <laughs> should do excellent service. So if I have to say this first of all, it means that um, you know that we we even have doubts that people would would do that automatically. But even worse, this leads then to these kind of undifferentiated service experiences that i was telling before because if i just say world-class service it means everyone will make their best effort and we will have one experience the same as any other i have to be super specific and this is why where the brand storytelling comes back in when when we do when we kind of um, strategize around customer service and about the customer journey we always start from the brand story we always ask ourselves what is it, what we want to inspire in our consumers? What is it, what we want to, where are we, how are we creating value? And then at each point of the customer journey, exactly the same inspiration has to happen at each part of the customer's journey, the same value has to be created. And so it's not about creating, let's say a world-class service. It's creating a very specific service that I can only get in that place. And that I cannot get at the at basically kind of the, the shop next door. And this is kind of where I think the, one of the biggest misconceptions is. And it's at the same time the biggest opportunities for company. Because in the customer experience and in the customer journey, is the value creation. You only create value in the customer journey. You don't create value on a mission statement that is somewhere in the drawer um, you know, of, of your marketing director. It's, it's nice that he has it in the drawer, but um, it's useless if it's, not, if it's not perceived by the consumers. And therefore, I sometimes say the brand positioning, the only person I care about when, it's, when it comes to brand positioning is, is the consumer. What is the, what is the perception of the brand in the, in, in the eyes of the consumers? And if the perception of the brand in the eyes of the consumers is not what I want it to be then my brand positioning is not correct, is not right. And then I have to correct correct the perceptions. And in the end, therefore, you know, when you said initially that um, some people call me like a brand psychologist, this is kind of, you know, (laughs) this is what what I mean. um, That's when I sometimes jokingly um, say this, because in principle, if I summarize my work, it's very much about helping brands to understand who they are and helping brands to understand really kind of to to translate the vision of let's say the vision of the founder or the vision of the management team of of the companies translated into something that's actionable and that the employees will understand that the consumers will understand and translating the vision into a story because if again if there's no story there's no value it's very very simple
0: very very insightful dan and 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 i think you made some very valid points there and one that really stuck with me it's also that internal internal culture within a brand right Mm. that drives the external you know i guess the the, the value right and i guess if they're not aligned there's a big gap between you know that that lady at the hotel and the consumer right Mm. because she was empowered and believed into the brand internally within within the actual facility, she was able to portray that uh, outside to, to, to yourself, right, to the consumer.
1: Exactly, and this is why I say sometimes, where we work and what we do is, I always start every project I do, and if the customers don't want that, then I don't work with them. It's very, it's very simple. Every yep. project we do, it starts with validating, auditing and validating what is, their brand equity, uh, what is their brand equity model? How, how are they doing that? Mm. Um, because if there is no clarity around that, how can they do anything? Mm. Yeah, if I basically build just beautiful, I don't know, I make great water or I make great tea or great coffee or I make great computers or so, it's all good. But um, if you don't, if you're not clear about your purpose, why you are in the business so the famous why yeah yes. um, and what are you doing and but the why is not enough so the why is important but then what are you doing differently and the i would say the secret of it is we have to understand so if we say what are we doing differently in principle is completely irrelevant for consumers i couldn't care less as a consumer what company a does differently from company b mm-hmm. the only thing that matters to me is what does the brand enable me to do differently and that is very different from the internal view and most companies are too focused on internal too focused on mission statements vision and values and all of these things completely irrelevant for for consumers yes. the only thing that matters is what what arrives here you know what do they want to tell me mm. and how do they create value for me and if I don't understand what. Let's say we talked about Rolex. If I would not understand anything about the Pepsi dial, I would never pay money for that. Correct. It makes no sense. So just to show, to confront me with a blue red bezel uh, itself has zero value, absolutely zero. But if there's a story around this again, coming back to that, suddenly there's a, there's value. Very true. But if now. But if now the, the person, let's say I buy the watch from, would come and would not know that story, or maybe tells me the story in a different way. So maybe, you know, I was dreaming about that all maybe all my life. Yeah? And so now I want to, to go and buy. And now let's say I go to the store, and now there's like a salesperson who may not really know what Rolex is. And maybe the salesperson tells me, you know, Daniel, you know, they are, maybe they are overpriced or, um, you know, there's, there's too much of a hype around that. I would not wait. I would not wait for three or four years. Yes. The salesperson tells now a different story than what this, the, the, um, the brand wants or the brand sees as a story then suddenly in me there's confusion because i hear, hear, heard now the version from the version that i heard maybe on the website now i come in the store and i hear a second version of the story which version should i believe a or b and now now the the, the crux comes in human interactions and i love digital yeah but human interactions are always more powerful than an interaction with a machine so now i may have learned everything digitally i go in the store and in the stores, something is off, even just 0.5% off. And if it's now really an important purchase, I may never do the purchase. And what we see with, in our work with brands is that very often, actually, the actual service experience is actually destroying brand equity. And so it's kind of the opposite that what so many people are thinking, that you need this human experience, otherwise it will not work. Yeah. What we see very often is the brand that every some brands do everything right digitally, and then you walk through the through, through the gates of the store, and you want to buy the product, and then they do something you don't like, and then you will walk out again, and you will be happy, and you didn't spend you didn't spend the money.
0: Kills them. kills the entire experience. Kills entire experience. Mm-hmm. Daniel, okay. thank you very much for that. It's been very 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 insightful. Uh, I'm sure our listeners have definitely got some some really good insights out of out of the conversation that we've, we've had today i guess lastly how do we how do we find you are you on social media linkedin twitter what's the best way to to to, to follow you
1: ah thank you so much yeah so um there are a couple of ways so first of all maybe start let's start with my columns. so i write regular columns and i think there are two that i would like to highlight um every monday i write a column that is called the future of luxury on jing daily and uh, then on every Tuesday in South China Morning Post, which I also think is quite popular in Australia, in South China Morning Post, um, you will find a column called Inside Luxury, where I'm answering a lot of um, questions from the readers about luxury brands so uh, recently i wrote for example something about mocktails versus cocktails when we just asked why why the heck are are, uh, alcohol-free drinks sometimes more expensive than alcohol drinks so these are also challenges for me sometimes to to you know to answer sometimes are things that i never really thought about before but that kind of keeps you always uh, you know grounded and um, so this is i think these two columns are very interesting every week to kind of learn about luxury and what is going on. And then our website is equitybrands.com. And on equitybrands.com, basically you find also all kind of resources. We have... Um, a, a, a quite big blog section where we uh, post all kinds of uh, interesting articles that we find um, around, you know, managing brands. We have a crisis management um, section on there where I have been compressing or, or, or putting together all kinds of articles and resources that I found since the beginning of the pandemic that I found personally useful or that my clients found useful in managing um, brands. So we kind of try to make um, the equity the website You know very informational for for um the people who go there
0: well thank you again very much and i uh yeah look forward to 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 catching again with you soon
1: great thanks rob thanks